And let me offer up yet another prayer to the Lord. Father, we just come to you, and some of us are thirsty and hungry for your truth because we know that your words are life, and we cherish them as your promises, as your revealed words of who you are, of your love and your mercy and your power. And some of us come this morning not thirsty or hungry at all, just coming because of a sense of tradition or duty. And Lord, I I ask that you would create in all of us just a thirst for your word um, and for the presence of Christ that comes to us through the word and that you would satisfy our souls, that you would comfort those who find themselves discouraged and those who find themselves in a difficult place. We ask that you would grant strength and power, that we would have the, the, the grace to delight ourselves in you and to trust in you. So Holy Spirit, we look to you, the Spirit of Christ, to do this work in our hearts. Um, this word will lie on the surface of our minds if you do not, in grace and mercy, take it and penetrate our hearts with it. At the same time, Lord, we, we want to soften ourselves, knowing that we need to have ears to hear and eyes to see. So will you do your work now as we open your word together in Christ's name? Amen. Well, um, there are some people who, this may sound like an odd introduction, but, but it works. Um, there are some people who like their coffee straight black. My parents are like that. You know, no Splenda. No sweet and low, no cremora, no half and half, no sugar, just straight black. (laughs) Me? I can't stand the taste of coffee without putting something in it, cream and sugar. Um, In fact, about the only time I think I'd actually drink it black is if I was on the top of a mountain freezing to death. Maybe then I'd have a cup of black coffee. And I know some of you don't drink coffee at all, but chances are you add things to other drinks. You might add um, lemon to your water. Um, we're all used to adding things into other things to make them, them better. I don't know of anyone yet, and you may be one of the rare people who cooks a steak without adding salt or pepper or some other kind of spice um, because we believe that adding salt, pepper, or some other spice actually makes the meat taste better. That oil refineries actually stick additives into your gasoline because they supposedly help your car burn cleaner. Um, That women, I'm thinking of my wife and my daughter in particular, they love to put bath bombs in their bath water because it makes it smell like flowers and makes their skin smooth. If you look on the back of a Campbell's soup can, you'll see how many things that they add to their chicken soup, most of which I can't pronounce. That is, um, we add things to other things to make them better. We all do it. It's all around us, and it's called additives. A little bit of this, a little bit of that in an effort to make it better or perfect. And we live life largely along that philosophy of trying to find things to make our life better better. Remember your teenage years when you thought that when you got a driver's license that somehow adding that driver's license to your life was going to make it better and then mom and dad told you to drive little sister all over the place and you realized this isn't better, it's maybe worse. And you get to the other side of the driver's license and, and you start think, well what else can I add into my life because something seems to be missing. And so some people will add a wife or a husband. And, of course, that's by design, and it's a gift of the Lord, but 
pretty soon the novelty wears off and you realize, wow, marriage is a little more work than I thought. And that nagging feeling of there must be something else um, begins to emerge again. And so you start to look for something else to add to your life. And so sometimes that's a house. And it's great until the novelty wears off and after you've mowed the lawn for the thousandth time and your roof starts to leak and you realize the paint is just peeling on your, on, your, uh, on your facial boards, then you realize, wow, this isn't all that it's cracked up to be either. And you have that nagging sense of, well, there must be something else that I should add to my life to make it better. And so along come kids and you think, wow, this is going to do it. We're going to feel completed when we have kids. And I don't know of a single person who has had kids and raised them who thought they felt completed by having their kids. (laughs) Now they bring joy in their gift of the Lord, but they simply do not complete. Contrary to Tom Cruise, what he may have said, there is really nothing that does complete. And so we have this nagging sense of, so there must be something else that I can add to my life, some other additive to my life. So sometimes people will eventually look to the Lord. And they will believe that, well, if, you know, maybe the missing component is the Lord. And maybe if I add the Lord to my life, well, well maybe that's what's missing. And so the family will start going to church and thinking that this is the piece that's missing. And if we add this piece, then, then it's, it's going to work. And we're going to feel that sense of wholeness again. But more often than not, after the novelty wears off, and you realize, well, Christians have problems too. And God doesn't make things perfect, and no church is perfect. Well, then they start looking for the next thing to add in, and oftentimes disappointed because God didn't complete them, they move on from the Lord too. I want to stop here and just say something that I think is very important. The problem with a life that is incomplete when it looks to the Lord is not the Lord's problem. It's a problem of the approach. That is to say, any approach to the Lord that makes him an addition to your life is fundamentally and foundationally flawed. Because God is not an addition. He's not splenda or salt that you just kind of stir into your life. I mean... Additives are always smaller in portion added to something which is larger in portion, right? Uh, we don't say, wow, this, this 2% milk is good, but if I add just a teaspoon of coffee, it's going to be really good. We don't add coffee to our milk, milk to our coffee. You always add the smaller portion to the larger portion. You don't say, sit down to a plate full of Morton salt and say, I think it needs a little tri-tip on top. It just doesn't work. You, you, you always add the smaller portion to the larger portion. You don't say to yourself, well, you know what would really go well with this monosodium glutamate is it's a little bit of chicken soup. It's not how it works. The, 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 the small portion always gets added to the large portion. So, so any approach to the Lord that makes him the small portion added to your life, your, dare I say, self-determined or self-centered life fails to understand the nature of the human soul and the essential need for God himself and the nature and character of the Lord. That the Lord of the Bible is never an additive. He's not salt or splendor that you stir into your life. It fundamentally misses the whole point. In fact, Jesus said this in John chapter 17, verse 3. He said, this is eternal life. This is life 
that they may know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God is not an additive to life. He is life. And the failure to get that will send you off, and you'll always find yourself struggling with the sense of incompleteness because you're not centering yourself on him. You're coming to the Lord in a way that makes him or believes his, his whole reason for existence is to ro- revolve or orbit around your determined life as if you know, he's going to somehow bless your way that you've chosen, you've dreamed, you've envisioned, rather than realizing that the universe revolves around the Lord. And life revolves around him. It's a complete and total revolution of the soul to realize that he doesn't exist for me. I exist for him. Then, ironically, you find peace. Now, that is a truth. The fact that the Bible calls us to, some have called it a God-centered life. Um, You can put pretty much any preposition you want to that basically... The Christian life, the life of those who believe in the God of the Bible, are to live their lives based upon, in, under, over, on top of him. Because he is the substance, not the additive. In Psalm 37, it struck me, hits that very truth. Um, This is, again, the third Sunday we've looked at it. It's a psalm dealing with how to live faithfully as the followers of the Lord, followers of Christ, in a painful, evil, often unjust world. And it's interesting to me that after he talks about the fret not yourself and don't be envious, he keeps saying the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. I mean, it it just stacks itself like like kind of a machine gun. Verse 3, trust in the Lord. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 5, he says, commit your way to the Lord. In verse 7, he says, be still before the Lord. So this is like the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He's the foundation of our trust. He's the object of our desire. He's the one whom we commit our way to. And he's the one for whom we're to sit and wait patiently and silently. Everything revolves around the Lord. That comes, I think, just shining through this psalm. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And the third of those, which we haven't looked at yet, um, I think hits this particular idea that God is somehow an additive to life right square in the face. The third of those, and that's all I'm going to look at, we're going to look at, it's just that statement. Commit your way to the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Now, as I thought about that, and I memorized it some months ago, I I came to that one, and I thought to myself, that seems a bit ambiguous. What exactly does it mean to commit your way to the Lord? Because I could see someone thinking, well, commit my way to the Lord. Well, I dream about being an American Idol, so if I pray and commit that to the Lord, then someday I'm going to be standing on the stage with Ryan Seacrest, and he's going to be saying the new American Idol. Is that what it means, to commit your way to the Lord? Your own vision of life, and then he behind you is going to take you there? And I don't believe that's the answer, but it is ambiguous. So let me try to unfold what I have learned from this verse as to what it means to commit your way to the Lord. Let me do it in a general way and then in a specific way. Broadly speaking, when he says commit your way to the Lord, what that means is commit the entirety of your existence to him. That little word way, commit your way to the Lord. 
In the Old Testament scriptures, that's a way of talking about one's entire journey of life. From your first breath to your last breath. From birth to death. And everything in between. Everything from single life to married life to parenting life to retired life. Everything from what you do as a hobby to what you do on vacation. The sum total of all existence is to be committed to him. Not two hours on a Sunday morning, not two hours at a small group meeting during the week, or going to the Mission Solano site and feeding the homeless, all of which are good things, but all of life is to be committed to him. Everything. See, so contrary to thinking that God, I can add a little of God to my life, rather this tells us, rather all of our life is offered to him, committed to him. And that is not simply an obligation or duty. It is a, it is a, it is a, it is a, it's an expression and it's motivated by this thing called trust. That we commit the entire entirety of our life, our entire existence to the Lord in trust. Because we believe those who have been convinced by the Spirit of God based upon the truth and what He has done on the cross believe that God is trustworthy of, of holding all of our lives. That he is the good shepherd. And he's good in everything that he does. And so in trust, we, we, we offer and commit every piece of life to him. So it's a facet of, of trust, but it's, it's more than just trust. Um, this word commit, I mean, it, it's built upon the foundation of the fact that you trust in the Lord, so you're going to you're going to surrender or relinquish, or you're going to hand up to him the entirety of your existence and everything in between. But it has a sense of deliberate act of the will to it. That word commit, it was fascinating to me when I looked that up. It actually means to roll. In almost every place it's found in the Old Testament, in particular to roll a stone. So Genesis chapter 29, Jacob rolls the word here, commit, rolls the stone off the mouth of the well. He says it three times there. uh, Joshua chapter 10, they roll a large stone to the mouth of a cave. So the idea is roll your way to the Lord. And I think there's, there's a potent image in that word roll. When it's, especially when what it would bring up to mind in a Jewish mind is a big rock or a stone. Something heavy, something burdensome, something hard. That's what a stone is. In essence, I think one could say that it's telling us to roll the burden of the way of life onto the Lord. Because life, as it goes on, it accumulates hurts, difficulties. It becomes heavier and heavier, and you add sin to that. It is just this big, huge ball. And it presses down upon the human spirit. That's what life does. So he's saying to us, living out our life in a world that is often filled with pressures, disappointments and discouragements, evil and injustice, commit your way to the Lord means this deliberate act of the will, energized by grace, don't get me wrong, to take this from me. That is, I trust you with the burden of my way and my life in its entirety. So broadly speaking, What it means to commit your life to the Lord means to roll the entirety of it from birth to death and 
the accumulation of all the joys and all of the hurts unto him, knowing that he is the one who is capable and good enough to bear it. That's generally what it means. Now let me go into two specifics. Because that doesn't have enough traction, I think. You know, traction where it gets into life and you feel it. Um, What does it mean when it gets into the more specifics to commit your way to the Lord, to roll the entirety of your existence onto the shoulders of God himself? And as I thought about this, two things became clear to me as to what it means in the specifics. Now, there may be more. You may have discovered more. That's fine. But these are the two that I have gleaned from this passage. One thing that, one specific way that we are to commit our way to the Lord is in terms of rolling onto his shoulders the burden of leadership, direction, guidance. Or we might put it in different terms. That is, that we are to, in committing ourselves to the Lord, to submit ourselves to what he wills, not what we will. Now, where I got that is simply the commit your way. A way is a road. I mean, it's translated other places as a road. It's a path. It's a trail. And all ways and paths and trails all have direction, every one of them. It goes north or south or west or east or some combination of those things. Every way has a direction. And in the scripture, for God's people, the direction of life is always determined by his will. Always. It's always determined by his will. So when he says, commit your way to the Lord, it's your way in following what he wants you to do. Committing your way to the Lord means you submit to the fact that he calls the shots in your life. That he runs the plays. And that is very hard. That is very hard for people who have, Christians and unchristians, who have ingrained in their soul this arrogant sense of self-determination. A lot of us have in our minds right now what we want to happen in our lives 5, 10, 15 years from now. We do. And that's not entirely bad. But oftentimes that comes with a sense of arrogant sense of self-determination, like I can take myself there. But to actually submit oneself to the fact that I, I'm not going to call the plays in my life is best as my plans are, ultimately he calls the shots. You know that there is, I think, within each of us, kind of a a, a coach who wants to call the plays and order life, have our kids do the certain things that we want them to do so that they'll turn out the way we want them to turn out and a particular job that will provide a particular level of income so things will work out in terms of possession and so forth so it will work out and our wife to act a certain way. And we have this kind of very self-centered understanding of what we want our life to be because we have this instinctive coach wanting to order the world and call the shots and the plays. Or if I was to use a musical metaphor, we all have in us this, this orchestral baton. You know, it's like the saxophones, and then there, there are the, the French horns, and the timpani, and then there's the, you know, the, well, whatever they call the, the big bass drum. And we like to kind of manage our lives and direct things. That, that's true of every single person, and a Christian has to resist that. That's why Jesus says, if any man wishes to come after me, he must deny the very that, yourself. A desire to pick up the baton and have other people march to your tempo or to call the place. Now, the way of Christ is the humble acceptance of the fact that, all right, Lord, you call the shots in my life. 
and to hold up the playbook and say, okay, what do you want me to do, coach? I don't mean to diminish the Lord by referring to him as a coach. But it's where do you want me to play? Third string, second string, first string, I don't care. Wherever you want me to play on the field, I'm there because I follow you. And when your baton goes, if you want me to play a violin, first, second, or third chair, you want me to play a trombone, I'll play. And I'll play it at your tempo. And I'll come in when you want me to come in. Because my life is committed to following you in trust. That's, that's part of what it means to commit your way to the Lord, is that you humbly accept the fact that he guides your steps. And you respond to it in faith and humility. Because he is the coach. He is the maestro. He's the king. And that's, that's what it means to commit your way to the Lord. And that's okay and all. Most people are okay with that concept until it gets hard. And then the Lord says, waves his baton and he says, you know what, Dan, you've got to forgive this person or you need to forgive that person of a sin that they committed against you 10 years ago. That is my play for you. It's right there in the scripture. And then we want to say, I, I want to run a different play. I want to go in a different path. As simply put, to commit your way to the Lord, not just in the overarching, here, Lord, here's my life, but also the day-to-day, Lord, this is your day, and this is your week, and this is your year, to humbly accept the fact that he calls the shots, and then to, in faith, submit to that, especially when it gets hard. That's what it means to commit your way to the Lord. As you roll the burden of leadership, you submit yourself to his playbook. To commit yourself to the Lord. That's one specific. And I, just, I wonder if there's some of you who have... I mean, I, I see this in the church. I hear it from time to time. Some people will say, man, I love this book. But verse 45, I don't like that one, and I'm not going to accept that one. Well, you just said, you know what? Your playbook's wrong, and I'm going to take most of it, but not all of it. That's not committing your way to the Lord. We accept all of his word, and we don't question it. Say, okay, Lord, you say jump. How high? Because I trust you, and because I know you love me, and I love you. All of it. That's what it means. Second, specific. This is the last one. And this comes from the context. To commit your way to the Lord has specific application to rolling onto the shoulders of the Lord, if I can use that metaphor again, the pains and the injustices of life. That's primarily, I believe, why this instruction is here. Because the psalm, as you remember, is talking about that struggle with evil and injustice and pain. So one of the ways in which Christians deal with that is they roll that pain and injustice onto the shoulders of the Lord. You have to do something with it. You can either hold on to it, or you can... 
handed over. Now, it's, I believe, very important for God's people to get their head and their heart around this truth. Because pain in life, whether it's caused by natural disaster or whether it's caused by personal injury, insult, and betrayal, it functions in life like a knife. That is, a person who is a Christian can be walking along and boom, you're hit by something difficult and powerful, deeply disturbing. And you are either going to go one way on the knife or the other way on a knife. It's like a, a watershed. Pain brings about a watershed moment in life. Watershed, you know, is where a difference of maybe even five feet. If you are on this side, all of the water goes to the Pacific, and on this side, everything goes to the Atlantic. And that five feet, whichever side you end up on, takes you in a completely different direction. One can either go down the side of doubt, or one can go down the side of faith. One can go down the side of running from the Lord because of that moment, that event, or one can go to the Lord. The same event can cause two very different effects in people's lives. And we've seen it. I've seen it up close and personal. Many of you have as well. The pain comes, and one of two things happens. There's only two options. There's either a slide into doubt, or there's an increase in faith. There's either a running from the Lord, or there's a running to the Lord. That either you can hold the pain, and it will twist you into something that you weren't before, or it will transform you into something more wonderful than you were before. That's what it does. It's a knife. And if one, depending on how one responds to it, responding in faith or in doubt, leads to completely different conclusions. Example. Husband comes home after a long week. He commutes. He's tired. But he's excited to see his wife and three boys. Gets home, pulls into the garage. Goes into the house expecting one thing, but experiences another. It's, it's silent. There's no laughter of kids playing their Xbox. There's no clanking of dinner pans. No music on, all of which is normal. Strange, he thinks. So he walks up to the master bedroom and, and he notices the closet door is open. Opens the closet door and notices that all her stuff is gone. Everything. And there's this undescribable sinking feeling like something bad has just happened but he's still hoping that maybe he's getting his facts wrong until he turns around and he sees on the bed a note, which is kind of a hasty scribble on it saying, I'm done. I'm gone. I'm not coming back. And I took the boys. And in that moment, his fear is confirmed. 
and a whole flood of conflicting emotions just takes over from deep sadness to anger to confusion to questioning why. But like a good Christian man, he gets on his knees and he begins to pray. Lord, I don't know what's happening here, but I pray you bring her back. A day goes by and she doesn't come back. He prays and he prays and he prays, Lord, restore my family. A week goes by and he prays and he prays and he prays and a month goes by and he prays and he prays and he prays. A year goes by and his hope of restoration begins to die. And with that hope of restoration beginning to die, he begins to doubt. Lord, did you hear any of the words that I called out to you? The days and the weeks that I lamented and asked for her back. He not only begins to doubt, but begins to doubt that God loves him, even to the point where he even doubts God exists. Meanwhile, he's got this just huge hurt in his life, and he determines at that moment, because he has allowed doubt to settle into his heart, he determines that, you know what, no one's ever going to do that to me ever again. And though he doesn't know it, he builds up a wall that keeps people out, keeps God out, and keeps him from living, loving, and enjoying life. And pretty soon he's imprisoned by his own pain, and he becomes shriveled. Just a shadow, a a shell of what he used to be. To the point where you can't even recognize the man who once rejoiced now living in a shell. That scenario happens all the time. Maybe a different event. Painful things in the past. Painful thing with kids, with parents. Churches, pastors, brothers. Jobs, careers whatever it is. And a person has to choose at this point, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with this? Am I going to slip down the slide? At the, at the very moment that it happens, that knife edge is rather thin. But the outcome of doubt takes you far away. David's instruction to the people of God is you know what? You can commit that part of your way to him too. You can trust him with it. And I believe, I believe the Holy Spirit gives people the strength to be able to deliver it over to the Lord and say, I know that was painful, that twist, that turn in my way, my journey of life, but I'm going to trust you were there, and you're going to continue to be there, and I do not want to slide down this slope of doubt that will leave me a shriveled person. But I'm going to continue to love people. I'm going to continue to allow people into my life and hurt me because I trust you with that. And I wonder how many people here who can, who can identify and say, you know what, I've, I'm that person. Things have happened in my life that, that have left me a shadow of what I once was. Here's the way. Roll it. Roll your way.
wait to the Lord. If Jesus Christ could carry the huge boulder of the sin of the world and death itself, along with the powers of hell, to the cross, I guarantee you he can be trusted with something in your past. You can trust him with it and live in the freedom of that trust. And I believe the Holy Spirit will give you the ability to deliver that over. Maybe it, it's a one-time thing. Maybe it's each day you're like, you know, Lord, I'm starting to take this back, but you know what? It's yours. I want to live. I want to live for you. And I want to continue to love, and I want to listen to your voice, and I want to do good even to evil people. I'm not going to let this pain, because that's exactly what the devil does, is he takes that, and he will drag you down that side of the knife. It is a tool. In the Spirit's hands, it becomes a tool of transformation. In His hands, it becomes a tool of twisting and shriveling the person. That, I think, has some traction to it in life. That's the context. It was given to us in a psalm dealing with how the Christian is supposed to deal with evil and pain because this is the alternative to doubt. It's to... Lord, I, I, I deliver this to you. And then in the freedom of that, you know, being able to say with the psalmist and experience the joy of the psalmist, like Psalm, let's see, this is Psalm 118. After going through a tremendously difficult time of being attacked, he says, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. And he has become my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. That can happen at the end and even in the midst of dealing with life that's painful. You can still praise the Lord in the storm popular song says. So it strikes me that kind of bringing this down to, to a landing here, that this is fairly direct instruction. And it should be. Will we commit our way to the Lord? Or will we not? Will we offer up to the Lord the entirety of our life? Or just little pieces of it? Are we going to continue to do the God additive thing and think, well, if I stir a little bit of God in, or is it going to be, no, it's all about you and it's all yours? Are we going to allow him to be the, the one who calls the shots in life or not? Are we going to deliver over our disappointments and pains of the past or are we not? I recognize the spirit is needed to make that commitment. But that's the challenge. It's a singular one. And how do we respond? How do we respond? And based on commitment levels in general, on part of God's people to corporate worship, to daily intake of the scripture, to caring and loving people sacrificially, I'd say this verse is largely out of tune with Christianity around us. Do we see people committing the entirety of their existence up in faith to the Lord? I don't think so, which means the church, in, in to response to this, needs to repent and say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry for giving you the leftovers of life. It's all yours. 
Or maybe, just maybe, you're one of the people who have come to church today or for the last few weeks thinking, I need a little bit of God in my life. And the Lord's like, no, you don't need a little bit of me. You need all of me. And until you get that, you won't know life. It'll always elude you. Maybe today's the decision that, you know what? It's all going in his hands. The entirety of my life, I'm tired of doing this halfway thing. And maybe the Lord is opening your eyes, and maybe the Spirit of God is is moving in your heart right now to say, it's all yours. I'm going to trust you for the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to trust you for protection. I'm going to trust you for provision. I'm going to trust you with my future. I'm going to trust you with life itself. And there may be others of you who the direct connection here is what are you going to do with the pain of the past? And it might be the pain of the present. How are you going to go on that knife? Well, this morning, perhaps, the Spirit of God is saying to you, commit your way to me. The twists and turns that you felt and that disappointment you had in me, just give it to me. I I can handle it. And I promise you everything will work out okay in the end. I mean, that's the promise at the end of verse 5. He will bring out your righteousness like noonday. I'd like you to just think about how you would respond. Can you say, you know, I, I have committed in faith my entire life to him. And if you are, then you pray for the grace to sustain that commitment. If not, and the Spirit is moving you, perhaps this is the time to say, you know what? I'm doing halfway. Or perhaps there is this big stone called pain in your life right now, and the Lord's saying, will you give it to me? Will you give it to me? What I'd like to do so that we can respond to this is I would like us to pray But I'm also going to ask, I'm also going to ask if there are people in this room who you sense the Spirit of God is moving in your heart to either offer it all to Christ or to offer over that painful thing, whatever it is. If you are one of those people and you would like to be prayed for, then we're just going to have some deacons and elders up here, and if no one comes and no one comes, then that's okay. But one of the best things we can do is just pray for each other and lift us up to the Lord and and find the grace and strength to actually do what this, this verse tells us to do, namely commit your way to the Lord. So let's do this. If you're here with somebody, maybe just get together and pray, Lord, would you help us and this church and your people to commit themselves wholly and completely to you. And you can pray however you want to around that verse, but let that be the centerpiece. Just pray. And then if you happen to be one of those people who just need someone to pray that you would actually be able to deliver over, roll to the Lord, either your life or the pain of the past, then I just want you to be brave, be courageous, just come up and just let us pray for you. I don't believe in altar calls here. Altar calls do not save. Jesus does. But he calls us to pray for each other. And that's what we're going to do. So if I could get you to just cluster together and just pray. I mean, this is basically, if we lived out this verse, a revival would take place. Um, Or it would be the evidence of a revival that this church has committed itself to the Lord. So just cluster into little groups. If you're here by yourself and you want to pray by yourself, that's fine too. Universal signs, stick your hand up, say, I'll pray by myself, that's fine too. And then if you're one of those people who just want to be prayed for,
just throw caution to the wind. Don't fear what anybody else is going to think. We just want to pray for you, and, and uh, hopefully our prayers lifted up to Christ will help you um, through whatever you're dealing with. So if I could have a, whoever, whatever deacons or elders, just come on up, and we'll just stand up here and, and uh, while you pray.